First Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the reading of God's word. Well, you all know the story of Joseph from uh, the book of Genesis. He was Jacob's favorite son. And overall, he was an upright man. He had his flaws. He was a little bit of a tattletale. He uh, lorded his visions of his own exaltation over his brother a little bit. But overall, he was an upright and godly man. And as he endured the trials that he faced, he proved himself to be godly and proved himself even to be changed from the ways he had been flawed. And yet, for all of his goodness, for all of the good things about him, he suffered deeply. His own brothers sold him into slavery. They couldn't bear to be with him, uh, and so they sold him into slavery. They intended to kill him, but they decided they wanted the money instead. When he was in the service of Potiphar, he was falsely accused, and he was imprisoned for a minimum of two years, but it was almost certainly longer. And yet at the end of his story, after the death of his father Jacob, when his brothers approach him and they're afraid that he's going to take it out on them for all the harm that they did to him, they're afraid he's going to take it out on them now that their father is dead. But what does he say to them? As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Daniel acknowledges the evil that was done to him. But at the end, he's able to say, God meant it for good. Well, Peter, in this letter, as we read at the very beginning of this passage, he writes, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering is a natural part of the Christian life. If you were here this morning, you heard all about it uh, in Pastor Charles' sermon. But it's been all over this first letter of Peter to the Christians in Asia Minor as they endured name-calling and ostracization, and some of them would have lost their employment and perhaps even been disowned by their families. Suffering is natural for the human life, but it's for a purpose. It's for making us like Christ. And Peter, in verses 18 through 22, is starting to unpack what that looks like. 
And so Peter is looking to Christ's own suffering for answers. And in this, he shows that the believer's suffering, your suffering as a, as a believer in Christ, is not in vain because Christ has already emerged victorious. And so what we have here in capsule form is a picture of the ordeals and sufferings, not only of Christ, but of the believer as well. And so we'll look in verses 18 through the first half of 20 at Christ's ordeal and victory. And then in 20 and 21 at the believer's ordeal and victory. And then in verse 22, we will look at how Christ goes beyond victory to exaltation. So here in verses 18 through 20, Peter lays out Christ's ordeal in his suffering and death and the subsequent victory in which he brings us to God and he proclaims his victory over the wicked. Now in this verse 18, we have here sort of a progressive intensification of this report of Christ's suffering. For it first just says Christ also suffered. And we know that Christ suffered deeply in this life. But Peter is putting an emphasis on the suffering of his death. He went to the cross. He was flogged. He was scourged. He would have been bloody, possibly with muscle and even bone exposed, even before he ever went to the cross. And then they put him on the cross where he died, where he died a gruesome death, cruel, not only in physical suffering, but also in uh, making a mockery of the criminal. It says in Isaiah chapter 52 that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He was even unrecognizable as a human being. But Peter goes further. He died once for sins. Once implying, starting to imply that this is the ultimate expression of suffering in human history. But also for sins. That Christ took sin, our sins upon himself. Now in the Old Testament, we see the great lengths to which God goes to separate himself from sin. You see God's presence in the most holy place of the tabernacle, and only the high priest can go in, and only once per year, and only with the blood of a sacrificial animal to pay for his sins. Even in the camp of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, we see that the, tent, the, the tabernacle sits at the center of the camp, and the Levites, who, are, who live according to a stricter life of separation and holiness. The Levites surround the tabernacle, providing another wall of separation between God's presence and the common people. So you see the lengths to which God goes to separate himself from sin, because he is holy, and he cannot abide the presence of sin, and he does so only by his grace. And so imagine God in the flesh taking on the sins of his people, taking on the very thing that he hates the most. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And as we hinted at, Christ made 
his, his sacrifice once. It's a perfect sacrifice. It says, for by a single offering he has perfected all, for all time those who are being sanctified. The ultimate expression in human history of suffering. And not only was it a difficult ordeal, but it was pr- profoundly unjust. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. He did not at all deserve to die. Christ is the only one who kept the law perfectly. He kept the law perfectly, which the law is not just some set of rules. But an offense against the law is cosmic treason against the God who has only ever done you good. It's breaking a personal relationship. And so Christ kept the law perfectly, in doing so loved his Father perfectly. But you, you were the one who deserved death for your sins. And so we have the enormity of Christ's suffering as Peter assembles this portrait of his suffering. And on top of that, we have the injustice of it all. But Jesus had a purpose. And he realized his purpose through this suffering. And what was his purpose? That he might bring you to God. It says in Isaiah 53 that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. He shall make many to be accounted righteous. In Hebrews 12 we read that for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was for the joy of delivering for himself a people, sinners like you and me, to put their trust in him and to bring us to God. And in so doing, he meets our deepest need, for fellowship with God is our deepest need. You need God to be your friend, or death will befall you. But if you trust in him, your sins have been dealt with. Because of Christ's one suffering for sins. And so you have no need any longer to pay for your sins. And he presents you before the Father. He makes God the Father your friend. And he introduces you as an honored guest into the heavenly throne room. Sometimes you'll see, perhaps in a a period movie of some kind or another, an important guest comes to a great house and what does What does the butler or the valet do? Well, he introduces the person who is coming. And that's what Jesus does for us. He introduces you to the Father. He makes the Father your friend. And this was Christ's mission, and this was Christ's victory. He accomplished his mission. He gained his victory, but only through suffering. And he gained it how? Well, Peter recapitulates this by being put to death. But here Peter adds an important detail. He was put to death in the flesh, but raised in the spirit. He was killed in the sphere of the flesh. He was killed in the sphere of human limitation. He was killed in the human nature that he shares with you and me. And this is indeed how his sins were paid for by his death. For if humans have sinned, then a human ought to pay. But they couldn't touch his spirit. 
And indeed, as we know, his spirit brought him back to life and body as well. So in the end, they couldn't even touch his flesh. It is his life in the spirit that even intensifies his victory as he is raised from the dead. He is alive in the realm of power, vindication, and of true life. And indeed, it's likely that this passage does not so much even just say alive in the Spirit, but made alive by the Holy Spirit. For in Christ's resurrection, the power of God is at work. And Christ's adversaries could not overcome the power of God that was at work in him. And so Christ emerges victorious from the tomb in which he was laid. And so Christ overcame them in their power. For through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. And being raised from the dead, he goes on to proclaim his victory over those who opposed him. Now this next passage, referring to the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, etc. Well, it's a difficult passage to understand. And Martin Luther, in fact, he he wrote, and I forget whether he said this in a sermon or wrote it in a commentary, but he said, this is a wonderful text and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So, If Martin Luther didn't get it, it, uh, believe me, I was sweating bullets studying this this week. And so when we come to a text like this, it's fair to approach it with some humility. But what we're going to see is that even if the precise interpretation is unclear, the overall message, the thing that Peter wants you to take home from this story remains the same regardless of the specific interpretation. And so the overall theme of this, of this passage is Christ's triumph and exaltation through suffering. And so one thing that seems clear is that this passage, when taken overall at a high level, it's referring to Christ's proclamation of his victory and the defeat of his enemies. Now, there are two understandings of what exactly Peter is referring to here. The historical understanding, going back to the time of Augustine, the the historical understanding is that the pre-incarnate Christ preached through Noah to the sinners of his generation, the sinners who were wiped out in the flood. And this has some support. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We also read earlier in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 11, that it is the Spirit of Christ who is the one speaking through the prophets. So on this interpretation, Christ preached the impending judgment through Noah. But in the last 60 or 70 years, many recent scholars, and I, I mean you know, many, it, this is, is by far the majority opinion among recent scholarship, 
It's the, is the, the belief that after Jesus' resurrection, and perhaps during his ascension, Christ proclaims his victory over the demonic spirits as they are in their prison. And this has some support too. This, the Greek word behind the spirits here is typically a word used to refer to spiritual beings, not to the souls of human beings. There's also the fact that the only other clear biblical reference to a spiritual prison is Satan's prison in Revelation chapter 20. There's also the fact that there's a Jewish tradition that Peter would have known of from the apocryphal book of 1st Enoch that the wicked angels from Genesis 6 were kept in prison and condemned for their relations with human wisdom, or sorry, with human women. And so for me, the hard thing is I would read the one view and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And I'd read the other view and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And that happens to me sometimes. But both interpretations support the basic message. Both interpretations are in agreement of what Peter is saying here. That whether through Noah or whether it's after his resurrection, Christ's victory is proclaimed to the wicked. So the wicked, they have no excuse. They have to endure the knowledge that they are the losers when they go toe-to-toe with Christ. And so Christ's victory is not kept quiet. And so in summary so far, what we see is we see Christ's terrible ordeal that he endured in his death, but that through it he gained a victory, a victory of faithful children of God, and that his enemies know it. But Peter goes on, and in this we see how Christ's ordeal and victory sets the pattern for believers' ordeal and victory. So we start to see Peter turn his attention now as he writes that when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So he starts to tell of Noah's ordeal in the flood. And one thing that's worth noticing here is that first, this ordeal for Noah is an ordeal for God too. Sin had become so great, so intolerable to God that it justified the extermination of humanity. And yet God was patient so that he could save Noah and his family because Noah alone was found upright on the whole earth. And so God had no desire to wipe out Noah along with the rest of humanity. And your ordeals are shared by God. God walks with you. God walks with you and experiences your ordeals with you. I just want to note that. But look at all the ways that this was an ordeal for Noah and his family. In Genesis 6, what does God say to Noah? He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Make yourself a box of gopher wood. Well, we say make yourself an ark of gopher wood, but the Hebrew word that stands behind that, it's, it's a box. It's a coffin, actually. It can be used to describe either, either object. Now, this is a large box, and it does prove to be watertight. But it's still a box. Go out to the Pacific Ocean in a bathtub, right? Well, 
For Noah, of course, shipbuilding isn't easy. This ark is big. It's a little longer than a football field, about half the width of a football field, and about four stories tall. Uh, we have to imagine that nobody except his sons joined him in the, and we assume his sons joined him in the project. And they spent a year, a year in a box, filled with animals, stinky, cacophonous, and a large box, but filled with animals. I can imagine it gets cramped, that their food gets stale. Whatever stores of water they had probably didn't taste very good by the end, although maybe they could collect rainwater, who knows. I would not want to be in that ark. I mean, I would take it over the flood, but I don't want to be there. And yet, to make it even worse, you've got the waters of the flood all around. Now, I just laughingly said, go take a, go take a tub, a bathtub out to the Pacific Ocean, and we don't think much of that. But in the ancient world, water stood for chaos and even for death. Genesis 1 indicates that the earth was covered with water before God brings order and life out of the water by creating the dry land and filling it with plants and animals. Ocean travel seems commonplace today, and we don't think about how wrong things can go because things never, hardly ever go wrong anymore. And I was thinking about how could we connect to this today a little bit, and I thought, what if God said to us today, I'm going to destroy the earth, I'm going to evacuate the earth's atmosphere into space, so outer space will come to earth, and you go make a really big tin can, and, let's, and I'll toss it up into space and you'll come back down in a year. And we think about the how difficult and complicated it would be to send people, even in a fancy spaceship to Mars. Radiation uh, is a concern, the loss of bone density, the loss of muscle mass, and the threat of space debris hitting and punching a hole in your spaceship, which doesn't ha does happen to the, even to the International Space Station. That's what it would have been like for Noah to see the waters of the flood all around. And yet, they were brought safely through water. And the text behind our English text even could have been translated, they were saved through water. The water that judged humanity saved Noah and his family. The righteous were rescued by God destroying their enemies. And this is how it's going to be at Christ's return as well. One day he will come to deal with his enemies and leave the righteous ones, his children, unmolested by the evils of this life. And yet it's only for a few. In the case of Noah, for eight persons. Only eight people survived the flood. And Peter is writing to a heavily outnumbered group of Christians in a colony of the Roman Empire. Being outnumbered is no indication that you are on the wrong side. 
And that is such an important thing for Peter's audience to remember today and for, uh, to remember then and for us to remember today. Remember this morning's uh, sermon text where Jesus says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So even though there are few people on this road that leads to life, it still leads to life. So this is the ordeal and victory of Noah. And I want to take a second for an interesting little side note, how in Peter bringing this story to his audience, we have a really interesting example of the apostle making use of stories his audience understood. Because we have a lot of evidence from that in, in, in Greco-Roman culture, in Asia Minor, they knew of Noah. Now, they weren't Jewish, they weren't Christians, but they knew of Noah and they respected him as a prophet or in a preacher of righteousness. Because remember, Noah, uh, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat in Asia Minor. And so uh, there are Greek writings that refer to Noah. And even in the second and third centuries AD, the, the Romans minted coins that had Noah on one side and the emperor on the other. And so Peter is reaching out to connect the story, the true story of Christ's victory with stories that they already knew. It's a very interesting uh, example of that. But back to the question of ordeals and victories. Now Peter turns his attention to you, to the, believer, to the believers in his day and our day. Where he says, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism represents an ordeal for the Christian believer as well. Now, there is a surface correspondence, for baptism's instrument is water, just as the instrument of the flood was water. But there is a deeper correspondence, a spiritual correspondence, as Christ refers in Mark 10 to his own death as a baptism as well. James and John want to sit at Christ's right and left hand in his kingdom. But Jesus says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so baptism, like the flood, represents an ordeal for the believer. Baptism is a seal of the faith in which we die to sin and live to God. And baptism is a seal of the faith that brings with it all of the ordeals of Christian living. And yet these ordeals lead to victory for you too. It says baptism now saves you. Well, how does baptism save? That's, you know, we're Reformed people, we have to ask that question. There is a, and I love the, the way that the Westminster Confession puts it, there is a sacramental union between the sign, water, and the things signified, faith in Christ, and especially membership in the visible church. Now, if you were baptized as a believer, as an, as an adult professing your faith, then baptism is a seal of the faith that you profess. If you're baptized as an infant, through baptism, you are admitted to the visible church, and we call upon God to give you saving faith in his due time. And so in this way, baptism is a proclamation for the gospel. And so in Peter, baptism stands 
for the faith that saves. Baptism is a seal of saving faith. But it's not automatic. That's why he so closely follows it with, not as a removal from dirt for the bo- of dirt from the body. You know, if you, if you douse yourself in water, dirt is coming off your body. You can't help it. It's automatic. It's just how it works. Well, baptism does not save in a mechanical or an automatic way. In the Scottish play, Lady Macbeth, conscious of her sins, she walks around mimicking, washing and washing and washing her hands. But that spot never comes out. And the doctor is right when he says of her, she needs the divine more than the physician. For baptism, likewise, is a sacrament that must be received by faith. It's a seal of the faith by which God forgives our sins. And in embracing Christ in faith, we're given a good conscience before God. It says in Hebrews chapter 9 that by the blood of Christ, our conscience is purified from dead works to serve the living God. And ultimately, to serve him in suffering. So whether baptized as an infant or a believer, we all have the responsibility to embrace its true significance, faith in Christ. We need to embrace this faith, and we can all improve our baptism in the language of the larger catechism, number 167. We can do this by serious and thankful consideration of the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by baptism, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. But all of this operates only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For baptism, and indeed faith, only have any effect whatsoever through Jesus' resurrection. As Paul wrote, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Christ's resurrection is the source of your living hope and your new birth. His resurrection gives you the right to appeal to God, to give you that good, that cleansed conscience, to forgive you your sins so that you may enjoy the victory that Christ prepares for you through the ordeals you suffer in the life of faith. And so we see that in the examples of Noah's ordeal and victory through the flood, and every believer's ordeal and victory through baptism and faith, we see how we all follow Christ's pattern in his own ordeal and victory. But Christ goes beyond victory, as we see here in verse 22. For Christ's suffering led not only to victory, but to his exaltation. I was at a, uh, well, imagine the, the Olympics. You can win a victory, but the exaltation comes when you stand on the podium. And Christ's victory like that. He has not only won the victory, but he has been lifted up and exalted for all to see. 
for he has gone into heaven. Christ ascended to heaven, and in heaven only worthy and spiritual things can dwell. So in heaven, Christ physically, his body was made worthy for heaven. Christ is in the only proper place for one of his holy and perfect stature. And he is at the right hand of God. Now, when we think of a throne, of course, we think of just the chair. But a throne includes the platform on which the throne sits. And there may be multiple chairs on that throne. And so Jesus speaks in Revelation chapter 3 of sitting down on his Father's throne. Well, it's not, the image is not really two people sitting in one chair. But Jesus is elevated to be at the right hand of God, to have equal status with God the Father, and to sit down on his throne. And he sits down because his work of atonement is complete. And while we wait for Christ's return, he has his Father's ear. He intercedes for us. And so he is still hard at work delivering us to heaven. And the Father hears his request because Christ has proven himself worthy through his suffering, through his enduring the trials of his work of atonement. And all of this is with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All powers in heaven and on earth, all spiritual beings, and of course, all human beings, are subject to him, whether they like it or not. There is no being more powerful than Christ. There is no being who escapes Jesus' sovereignty. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we read in Ephesians 1.22 that he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Not only has Christ had all of his enemies put under his feet, but it is for your benefit. It is for the church. He is the head of the church, and his victory and exaltation over his enemies is for your benefit. So in the end, all of Christ's suffering led in the end not only to victory, but to exaltation. Now, death and resurrection is a favorite trope in fiction, and especially in fantasies and epics. And I think sometimes of that great triumvirate of 20th century fantasy uh, series, Harry Potter, The Chronicles of Narnia, and The Lord of the Rings. And every single one of those, in their own way, features a scene of death and resurrection and victory that can come only through death and resurrection. The one that's most epic in scale, of course, is in The Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf fights the demonic Balrog on behalf of his companions. But this was quite an ordeal. He destroys Durin's bridge, um, and then is dragged down into the depths of the earth by the Balrog. And later, after his resurrection, when he encounters his friends again, he says this. Now, fair warning, I'm quoting the movie. The book is much better, but it's also much longer. 
And he sa- so Gandalf says, from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, I fought with the Balrog of Morgoth. Until at last I threw down my enemy and smote his ruin upon the mountainside. Darkness took me, and I strayed out of thought and time. Stars wheeled overhead, and every day was as long as a life age of the earth. But it was not the end. I felt life again. I've been sent back until my task is done. Gandalf? Yes, that is what they used to call me. Gandalf the Grey. That was my name. I am Gandalf the White. And I come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Gandalf returned to life after his great ordeal with even greater power and honor than he had before. Now, it's an imperfect analogy. All human works of fiction are. But hopefully, the grandeur of Gandalf's story points you to the greater grandeur and beauty of the true story of Christ's own death and resurrection, leading him to victory and to exaltation. And an exaltation through suffering that he is leading you to as well. For Jesus promises in Revelation chapter 3, he promises to those who are faithful, the one who conquers, I will grant to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us this picture of ordeal and victory so that we may be encouraged to endure through the sufferings that we face for faith in Christ. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us to endure, and we are confident that you will give us the gift of this Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that in all things we may learn to imitate Christ, not trusting in ourselves or our strength, but trusting in him, trusting in his blood. For Father, we fall short but he, his victory has been won and is secure. And by faith in him, we know that he will lead us on. So we pray that you would do this. And Father, we look forward to the day when he returns to exalt us with him. Amen.